It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Boring. As always, it's presented by Ryan Kiefer of First Community Mortgage. We'll talk some sports topics of local interest, maybe a national topic or two. I don't know if we've got any gambling. I'll let Rick decide that. And then the favorite portion of the podcast for me, when you can ask me a question on any topic, go to the Twitterverse on the day of this podcast or even the days before. Hit up the hashtag Ask Any Anything. Rick collects them. He asks them. You ask them. And I answer them with a little help from Rick as well. Rick, how are we doing on this rainy Thursday morning? Uh, I've got a little betting for you right off the bat. Are we going to get over under a half of an inch after it was described as the greatest monsoon in uh, since Noah's Ark? <laughs> I think we're I think we're getting over. All right. No, there you have it. That's our uh, betting segment for the week. Well done. We, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got Super Bowl stuff. We've got some Bengals stuff to wrap up. We've got college basketball and pitchers and catchers did report. We'll we'll try they to sure get into did. that a little bit. They sure did. All right. Let's get into wrapping up this Super Bowl, though. The Chiefs beat the Eagles in Super Bowl 57 by a score of 38 to 35 on a 27-yard field goal attempt by Harrison Butker. By now, everybody knows that the kick was set up by a defensive holding call on the Eagles that allowed the Chiefs to take the clock all the way down to the final seconds before attempting that kick, essentially taking the excitement out of the ending of what was an incredible game leading up to that point. So, Skinny, we talked about this on the last show. I asked you point blank, do you think it's good or bad if this game comes down to a controversial call? It did. Let's start with this. Did you have an issue with the call itself? Um, I did and I didn't. It was a hold by the definition of the rule because he did grab some jersey. The only problem for me is Pat Mahomes. I think this is where you have to have some subjectivity to this. Pat Mahomes is clearly throwing that ball away, clearly throwing that ball away. Juju Smith-Schuster, even if he had not been held, would have had to would have had to have one-two speed in the 40-yard dash to catch up to that football in the end zone and catch it. And that, and that to me is where the subjectivity has to come into play, in my opinion. Well, and the other part of that is, and I agree with what you said, it, it's clearly a hold. He grabbed a fistful of jersey. That's an easy call for the refs most times. And stand up, James Bradbury. I give him credit after the game for saying he did. But to your point, and I, I understand by the wording of the rule on defensive holding, uncatchable isn't a thing there. So I, I realize that's not the rule, but I agree with you on the subjectivity of like, come on, that's that's not really part of the play in that case. I mean, that ball's being thrown away. They're 15 yards away from it. It's really not affecting the play. And the other part that really drives me crazy is they had let so many things go over the course of this game, which was great. I thought they did a great job of just letting the players decide it. There weren't all the ticky-tack holdings and pass interferences called. There were some great plays throughout the game. And then in that moment, you make a call like that. It's like, again, I don't have an issue with the call because it was defensive holding, but it would have felt a lot better if they would have just let it play out like the rest of the game. Yeah. I mean, it, it's reminiscent of last year's Super Bowl, right? Where they pretty much let a lot of things go. And then at the end, and the more I keep watching that Logan Wilkes, it came up on a bunch of national shows again to show the, you know, kind of the similarities. The more I watch that play, I'm like, God, that wasn't even close to a penalty, really. I mean, that's the first quarter. They're not throwing that flag. Golly. I mean, and so you've had two Super Bowls decided in part because there was no guarantee the Bengals were going to go. And the Bengals did have a little bit of time, obviously, in, in this last game to, to try to get down the field, to, to kick a tying field goal or, or, or get the win. Um, in this case, Philadelphia did not. I mean, obviously, in this scenario, Kansas City is going to kick a field goal. Um, it you know It's going to be a little bit of a longer one than what Butker ended up kicking, but probably well within his makeable range um, if that penalty isn't called. But it would have given Philadelphia some time. I think the one thing that can't be overlooked is there's no guarantee Philadelphia would have scored. And I know Philadelphia feels cheated, but but there's no guarantee you were going to score either. So No, and, but I don't think – I mean, at least I don't – I never felt that way. I never felt like, oh, the Eagles should have won the game. It's not like that they got screwed out of a win right. necessarily, but we all got screwed out of an opportunity for them to try, Correct. which would have been yeah. exciting because yeah, the yeah, game sure. was awesome. The game was awesome right up until that point, and then it made a very anticlimactic finish. So I, I go back to the overriding question that's come about since all these playoffs began because it feels like every game has had crucial calls. What do you do about it? I genuinely believe what I said on last show is accurate. The NFL rule book is too damn big and changes way too often for any of these refs to be consistently good at it. It's just impossible. I don't know how you could get all of these guys on the same page with all of these rules and have them 
remember it, enforce it, and interpret all on the fly like that when you have these elite athletes making bang bang plays. It's, it's just going to be too hard. I, and look, I'm to be clear, I am not changed the way the game is called guy in the final seconds. I'm not someone who, like, at the end of basketball games, thinks you should just let all fouls go because the game's online. Call it the same way the whole game. My issue is it wasn't called like that the whole game. You could call defensive holding 150 times in an NFL game if you wanted to. They had called it none leading up to that. And and like we we talked about, I mean, that that pass was never going to be caught. I mean, it wasn't even close to whether he was held or not. That pass was not being caught. Patrick Mahomes is clearly throwing that ball in the direction of a receiver to avoid grounding. That's all he's doing. So, I mean, well, I mean, do you, I know we discussed this a little bit last week, but do you have any other thoughts on what you would do to fix the problem or if it's even a problem that they're interested in fixing, which I don't think they are? I, I go back to it probably starts at the grassroots level is is somewhere along the way. You've got to start paying officials more. You've got to make professional officials, especially in the NFL, real professionals. I mean, that is their that is their vocation and pay them handsomely. Um, I'm talking, you know maybe a quarter million dollars a year, whatever it takes to ensure that you've got the best pool of, of people available doing this job um, and doing it on a full-time basis. MLB does it. NBA does it. You have, I mean, honestly, I don't hear a lot of bitching about NBA officials. I mean, there's technical fouls and all that, but there's, there's not a ton of overriding bitching about it. There's a little bit of bitching in major league baseball because of strike zones, but really for the most part, you know, even though those intrusive boxes are on the, on the screen, for the most part, those guys do a pretty damn good job calling balls and strikes. Although there's talk, obviously, of having the robo uh, robo umpire calling balls and strikes, and maybe you're going to get to that point of it. But I, I just go back to the better pool of officials that you can have, the, the better off this is going to be, and it's going to entice people to maybe start early, make this a profession eventually, uh, as opposed to going, yeah, I'm a lawyer, and on the side, I go referee NFL games on a Sunday. I think that's a good call. I think that's probably right. I'll also go back to the fact that I don't think the NFL wants to fix this problem. I think this is good for the sport. I think all this conversation is good for the popularity of football. It probably is. I mean, it, it, this will be taught. Like I said, you, you asked about this last week and I said, yeah, the fallout will occur and the fallout will lead into the combine. The combine will lead into free agency. Free agency will lead into teams getting back on the field for OTAs in the draft. Then a little bit more of OTAs in a mini camp, then a little break. And then we're back to training camp again. Skinny, what did you think of the broadcast team for this game? We we talked about them leading up to the game, and now it's played out. I was curious what your thoughts were on the job they did. Um, frankly, I didn't hear much of it because I was at a, a small gathering and there was a lot of conversation going on. Um, but I will say the parts that I probably listened, it it didn't they didn't bother me. So I, I guess that's saying something. Yeah, I, I would say that's a really good way of putting it. They they called a very clean game. I actually thought they did a pretty good job. Again, professional sounding. Not a lot of personality to either of these guys. A little dry, a little boring, I would say. Um, I thought Burkhart just lets things breathe a little too much for me. But that's better than the alternative of talking way too much and being over the top and goofy. Like his final call on the Butker field goal, it felt like he was about asleep in the booth. You would have, <laughs> you would have thought that was a, a first field goal to start the game between Jacksonville and the Jets on yeah, a 1 p.m. You, game on Sunday. Yeah, I think when you try to play it so down the middle, it, it does become pretty hard. There's some special people that can pull off calling big moments where you're like, oh, he's not a homer for them. I mean, the Keith Jacksons of the world, the Dick Enbergs of the world, the Al Michaels of the world. I, I'm with you, but those guys are just a handful that can do that so well that, that they can pull it off. Yeah, but I mean, that's the type of broadcast you expect in the Super Bowl. No, you're right. That's the guy who makes it feel like a big game. That's a a fair point. I I will give Greg Olson a lot of credit. I thought, one, he does a really good job, and he's been doing this all year, of explaining things in a way that fans can understand, not just throwing out a bunch of football coaching terms and making it sound like he's saying something. A good passer of the football, a good tackler of the runner. (laughs) Yeah, He says useful things throughout the game and points out useful things, which is nice. And he's a bit dry. And I will give him credit because at the end of the game, when the defensive holding call occurred, Mike Pereira gave his thought, agreed with the officials on the field, and Olsen pushed back and basically said similar things to what we were saying. It was just like, I understand by the letter of the rule or what have you, but in that situation, I just hate that call. And and I like that he really gave the feeling of a fan in the booth at that right. moment and, and described what everyone at home was feeling. I thought he did a good job of not just caving and saying, okay, well, Mike's the expert. We'll just go with what he says. He, he kept pushing back on it and just said, look, that, that's fine, but I do not agree, and I don't like it. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Finally, what'd you think of the commercials, Skinny? Did you catch any of those? I did. Um, 
I mean, I, they just didn't do much for me this year. There wasn't one I openly laughed at. I think the, the one I liked the best was the the flag football uh, girl running and yeah, then you know, get in her house and then all of a sudden her mom's coming after her. I don't even know what that commercial is for now that I think about it, but I like the commercial. <laughs> I thought it was like a, a C plus, more, maybe maybe more like B minus type night. There were no A commercials, none of them that you were like, oh, that was really funny or that was really good. But there also wasn't the commercials where you sit there and go, that's stupid. What the hell was that? Yeah, yes. It wasn't as much try hard stuff going on there. There's that weird religious commercial thing that kept popping up. I have no idea what the hell that was about. But other than that, I thought all of them were uh, were pretty normal and solid. Yeah, no, I, 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 fewer I, dog commercials, though. There's the tear jerking dog commercials during the Super Bowl. It's not I don't need that. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm going through a bad time with our dogs. And so, yeah, it's, I don't need that either. Yeah, that's unnecessary. All right. A little bit of Bengals news to get to from this week, skinny. Offensive coordinator Brian Callahan and defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo will both be back with Cincinnati next year after getting passed over for head coaching jobs. Callahan was up for the Colts job and Anarumo was a finalist for the Cardinals gig. Are you surprised that neither one of those guys got a head job? Um, I'm more surprised Lou didn't get it based on what the finalists were in in uh, in Arizona. Um, you know, the, the the defensive coordinator from from Philadelphia that got it. I mean, that was not his finest work on Sunday, although everybody keeps pointing up uh, it's hard a guy whose defense gave up 38 points. Well, it really didn't because seven came on a fumble recovery and then the punt return took the ball to the three. But they they still didn't shut down Patrick Mahomes. They weren't dominant like they were at times this season. You know, maybe they were looking for a younger guy. and Maybe that's what it came down to. Push came to shove and they said, we got two good defensive minds. If we're going to take the take the defensive side of it, taking Mike Kafka and the offensive side of it. Let's take the younger guy. And maybe that's what it came down to. And maybe unfortunately for Lou, he is at that age now where maybe he's not going to get a swing at it. And that I, I hate that for him. But, you know, maybe another deep playoff run for the Bengals with Luana Rumo's defense doing special things will put him in that conversation. And I think for Brian, um, it's weird for Brian because he's he is an offensive coordinator. He's a big part of offensive game planning. The room loves him. Um, players love him. All of those things. I think he pushes the right buttons. But I do wonder if he's hindered by not being a play caller. And if that's the next step, that if he gets passed over again, that he has to look to go somewhere to be a play caller, maybe. That seems reasonable to me. I, like if you're now, Zach wasn't a play caller either. I mean, Zach went from quarterbacks coach to a head coach. Right. But at like, least which I questioned at the time, but but at least know. he was the quarterbacks coach, which I feel like is almost better than being the neutered offensive coordinator who doesn't get to call the play. Well, and that and that's where and listen, I don't know what's going on with the Eric B enemy situation. But Eric Bieniemy has the title of offensive coordinator in Kansas City, but I think he gets hindered. Everybody's pointing at this being a black-white issue, and it may well be. Maybe I'm too naive in that regard. I don't think it is. Uh, he's interviewed in a ton of places and come up empty. Either he's a bad interviewer, or maybe it's the fact that, that he's not a play caller. Maybe that hinders him too. Well, he's not a play caller, and he has an elite talent at quarterback. I think people look at that situation and say, well, he has Jackson, or he has Patrick, not Jackson, right. Jesus. He has Patrick Mahomes which how good do you need to be as a play caller if you have him? And he's not even the play caller. He has to give off those duties. I think a lot of people seem, see the same thing when they look at Brian Callahan saying, look, he's got Joe Burrow, who's right. really the one making all this go. And then Zach Taylor is the one calling the plays. So how much is he really doing? I'm not taking shots at the guy. No, no, I no. I'm not, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm glad they're both back. I think they're both very good coaches and, and the Bengals benefit from having both of those guys back. But for them to take the next step. That's why I wonder if Eric Bieniemy, you know, gets out from underneath Andy Reid this year and goes and takes another offensive coordinator job where he is the play caller. And maybe Brian down the road looks at something like that, or maybe a better opportunity comes. I mean, I'll be honest with you. If I'm Brian Callahan, I'm not so sure I would have taken the Indy job. I know it's one of 32, but if I'm going to take my first one, I remember I said this to Hugh Jackson. I said, because he, he took it and they said, it's one of 32. And I said, yeah, but you know what? Don't you want to go succeed? And he of course gave the ego answerable i feel like i can go succeed no you couldn't it was a, it was a winless situation and your career bottomed out for goodness sakes and it kind of feels like the colts are a disaster of a yes. organization too yes yeah so i think for i think for brian um it just may be at some point if, if this keeps coming up and the Bengals keep going on deep runs i mean you've kind of hit then a dead end where you're at that you may have to step out from from zach's shadow and go be a play caller somewhere else well, and Zach Taylor is going to talk about the continuity of bringing these oh, guys back huge. and how great. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, because I think we've seen it play out both ways in, in football, both college and NFL, where 
you keep guys around and they do really well together. But then also you see teams where the head coach is turning over coordinators pretty frequently and they keep things rolling because they have really good players. Uh, do you think the continuity is a big deal for the Bengals? I do, because, especially on defense, because I think Luana Rumo, and this is where he got a lot of criticism in the first couple of years, because um, he didn't have his players. He had two defensive ends who wanted to do what they wanted to do, and Carlos Dunlap and Carl Lawson, who just wanted to, at the snap of the football, get up the field. Rarely set an edge, um, you know, rarely, um, you know, never wanted to drop into coverage. He finally was able to, thanks to some what his scheme was and, and obviously conversations with, with the personnel people of getting his players in there to do things he wanted to do guys with great versatility. So I do think that that that's a very big key is that you're going to have on this team. Let's just assume for argument's sake that they resign at least bond bell. I mean, you'll lose Jesse Bates and Jermaine Pratt and that's it. You're going to have continuity of a coordinator and nine starters back. They can hit the ground running because the nine starters know exactly what Lou wants. You're not ramping eight people up to speed. You're not taking a new coordinator scheme and trying to fit it into all, all players on defense. you got a coordinator who's been with these guys, and they've been with him, and you can do a lot of things and hit the ground running. I think that's where you've seen this defense evolve into being able to do so many multiple things with disguises and whatnot because of the continuity of him and the players. I think it is huge on the defensive side especially because – the defense hasn't been as talented as the offense has no, right. the last few right. years. And yet they have found a way to play at a really high level. So I do attribute more of that to Lou Anarumo and his scheming. And also, like you said, it's not all about continuity with the coaching staff and system. It's also just having the same players back and having them be familiar with each other. That matters a lot too. And uh, the Bengals have that going for them. So you put it all together. I do think it'll add up to something pretty good for Cincinnati. Uh, one other here, one other thing to get to here with the Bengals, Skinny. They were given the fifth best odds to win next year's Super Bowl following Sunday. Do you like those odds better for Vegas or for the better? I think for the better. Um, I saw the athletic today. Yeah, by the way, the odds were nine to one. I didn't yeah. mention that. No, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I knew that. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, though. Um, I, I think those are pretty good odds. I mean, I think they're one of the two or three best teams in the NFL. And if I'm going to say that, then nine to one feels like a gift. Yeah, you got the Chiefs with the the lowest odds, six to one. Then it goes Bills and Eagles at seven to one, 49ers at eight to one and Bengals at nine to one. I wouldn't go as far as to say that's disrespectful or anything. It's an algorithm, first of all. So how could it be? But um, I don't think it's it's like a slight towards the Bengals. But I also would agree with you that I think it's a, a pretty good price if you can get them at nine to one. Yeah, like I said, the Athletic put out their their power rankings, their postseason, and kind of as a, as a look ahead to next season power ranking. And it's just it's subjective, obviously. But they had Kansas City one and the Bengals two. And I, I you start to look around, and you go, that sounds about right. And they have Philly three. And I, yeah, I mean, those seem like the five most logical teams to win the Super Bowl next year is the first, is the top five that you named off because it's you know Frisco, depending on the health of, of the quarterback situation where they go with it, is a really good team. Other than that piece at the moment. Um, Philly obviously is is loaded for bear coming back. And then the Bengals, Bills, and Chiefs are probably the three best teams in the AFC without question. And honestly, I'd put the Bengals ahead of the Bills in that regard. Yeah, I think that's fair. Who is there a sleeper team that you like for next year if you're going to look at taking these crazy early Super Bowl odds, futures? I'm doing this only because when they were healthy, they were just so damn dynamic. But I can't bet on the health of a quarterback. I got two of them for you. One is the Dolphins. I I was really bullish on them last year, and then the two of numerous injuries kind of derailed that circumstance. But, boy, if the Jets get themselves a quarterback, what if? So the Jets, surprisingly, only sit about, uh, looks like, 10 10 or so back at 27 to 1. I think the belief is they are going to get the quarterback put together another great draft class and you got yourself the makings of a pretty good football team. All of a sudden dolphins were- are, are much more middle of the pack at 35 to one. Yeah. I, ooh, I like those odds too, though. Uh, here, here's one that I like that's similar to the dolphins uh, actually one spot above them at 30 to one. What about Jacksonville? Yeah. Is there a possibility that Trevor Lawrence is ready to burst onto the scene and be an absolute star? Yeah, but I'm ranking him behind three or four other quarterbacks in the in the conference, and I just can I see them winning a playoff game? Yeah, maybe. I, I just don't see them being in that upper tier quite yet. It was a hell of a jump this year just to win that division, but let's not forget they also won a crappy division. 
All right. Any other thoughts on football, the Super Bowl, the Bengals, anything before we move on? Um, we did not talk about the, yeah, no, I think we're good. I was gonna say, did we, we did not talk about the, the, the Ken Riley into the, into the hall of fame last week. Cause it occurred last Thursday, but we did not any, anything you yeah. want to add there. Yeah, I know you- I've, I've, I've said it before and I'm glad for Ken Riley. I said this on TV the other night and, and I'll say it here too. Um, I'm happy for Ken Riley's family and Ken Riley's legacy. I mean, he was, he was a cornerback of my childhood as a, as a Bengals fan with my father. But I, Lamar Parrish was a better player, and Lamar Parrish gets no run for the for the Hall of Fame, and I wish he did. It 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 honestly is a crying shame. Yeah, we've talked about that a few times on this yep. podcast, and you've been pretty consistent on that. All right, let's flip it over to college basketball, where we'll start with Xavier, who lost on Friday night at Butler in a shot out sixty nine to sixty seven. Then they turn around, played really well for about twenty seven twenty eight minutes at Marquette on Wednesday night, end up losing it in the final minute, 69-68 to the Golden Eagles. Uh, Xavier will play Saturday at home against DePaul and then Tuesday at home against Villanova. Skinny, what would you make of the Musketeers dropping two games without Zach Fremantle? Well, A, I think they ran out of gas. B, you know, you got Kiki Tandy playing 25 minutes out of necessity and he gets blown by at the end of the game on the missed layup that was eventually tipped in. I thought it was a valiant effort, but you know, you're, you're short some bodies. And, and that's one of the reasons I think they could not hold on to that lead. Plus Marquette's pretty good on top of it. That would have just been, that would have felt like stealing a win. Um, and they, sh- they should have stolen it because they had it stolen for 39 minutes and whatever, 38, 48 seconds, 58 seconds of it. Yeah. They got up by 13 in the first half and you knew that wasn't going to last, especially with their lack of depth. Cause not only was Zach Freeman allowed, but they were also missing Desmond Claude for this game who didn't even make the trip. He was home in Cincinnati sick. And then you had freshman cam craft with a knee injury. So, I mean, that's not a a huge loss there off the bench, but it's still one of the other guys that you would have played in a backup perimeter spot. So you really Kiki Tandy was the only perimeter player that they had a healthy to bring in off the bench and Adam Kunkel got in foul trouble. So they yeah. were forced to play him 25 minutes. Yeah. And, and that's the concern going forward for Xavier. Now Desmond Claude's going to be back very quickly. So I don't think it's a very long-term thing, but Adam Kunkel, if you had to rely on him playing the entire game with no backups, teams are just going to do exactly what Marquette did go right after him right. and get him into foul trouble. So you're going to be forced to play that bench some and uh, whether it's Desmond Claude or Kiki Tandy or whoever someone has to step up off that bench and then they didn't have anything off the bench against Marquette and then Sule Boom who was playing with a sprained ankle that he suffered in the Butler game you know he he leads all scorers in the game with 25 points he made some great shots but he had seven turnovers and two of them in the final 40 seconds that were just mind-blowing I mean Xavier had the ball up three in the final 30 seconds and then somehow still found a way to lose a game because of Sule's crazy back-to-back turnovers. I mean, again, I think there was a reason he wasn't a point guard in Conference USA when he played for Utah. You know, and Xavier's made him a point guard here in the Big East. That's something you kind of have to live with a little bit is he's not exactly built for handling the ball against pressure in end-of-game situations. You know, uh, you, you and I have talked about this a little bit, about you know the great balance of scoring that Xavier's had, and they've been so good offensively. But it is weird. Their last three road games, Rick, they've been held under 70 points. And obviously a couple of those without Zach Fremantle, maybe all three actually without Zach Fremantle. Um, I thought they could mask his loss with with some other guys picking up the scoring slack, but, but maybe I was naive to think that. I think they have to some extent, and certainly for some halves, they've been completely normal. I mean, the second half of that game against Marquette, they shot really well. Now they had turnovers. But when they weren't turning the ball over, their offense was flowing while they were scoring. But I do agree with you that losing Zach Fremantle has changed them from the standpoint that a huge part of their flow game offense that they've had a lot of success with was getting a lot of high-low looks from Zach to Jack or vice versa. And with Jerome Hunter in there, he's all right. He's a good defender, but he doesn't give you near the same inside presence or scoring threat that Zach Fremantle did. And it takes away a lot of the bite of that high low look. And it also doesn't force the defense to make a tough decision on who do we put our best interior defender on Jack or Zach? And how does Xavier then exploit that? Now it's like, well, you put your focus on Jack Nungy 
and you don't really worry too much about Jerome Hunter. And that doesn't mean Jerome Hunter can't play at all, but it does mean that no no team is worried about him beating them from an offensive standpoint, and that does make Xavier different on that end of the floor. Now, they've been better defensively since Zach left the floor, and, and they've played with a smaller lineup. This is the best defense they've played all year these last few games, but if the offense isn't as good, that takes away what makes Xavier special. So they need the offense to be elite. Agreed. And and, it, and for a big chunk of this year, it's been elite. Yeah, but that was with Zach. So, I mean, I do think now he warmed up before this Marquette game. I don't think anyone knew that was going to happen. So he went out there and basically the way it sounds like is he's kind of dealing with an injury similar to last year, which was a stress fracture, which means uh, he may need surgery again after the season is over or something like that. But it's more of a pain tolerance thing than it is. a It's going to be fixed at some point thing. So maybe he could come back a little bit sooner than they were originally suggesting, which was like potentially Biggie's tournament time. Right, uh, right. We'll see if he, if he makes it back for any of these final few regular season games. All right. You see wins 84 65 at home over USF and then turns around and in a game that they were leading by double digits, the entire time at East Carolina, they absolutely fold down the stretch Lose 75-71 to the Pirates. What do you make of Cincinnati's one in one week? They just make me yawn. And I hate the I hate to be that guy. That's not fair. It's not right, but they, they just don't move my needle in either direction because they're they're not an NCAA tournament team. So what do you what what are you what are you left playing for? And then you start looking to the future and you're like, how many of these guys on the roster can play in a Big 12? Well, and even more concerning, how many of them are going to be back next year. Even. Right. Are you going to be completely rebuilding while going into the big 12 as one of the worst teams? And this is, this is one of my concerns. I've been saying since the beginning of the season that Wes Miller is about to find himself in a really difficult position yes, he is. because yeah. he went all in on this year and played to win this year. That's the only excuse for having a, a roster full of upperclassmen like Mike Adams, Woods and Odia Guama and Kalua Zikpe and not playing Dan Skillings and, and Josh Reed as many minutes as possible or finding other transfers that had multiple years of eligibility left. He made the decision to stick with this core group of older players and play to win right now. And he's had some bad luck with injuries. John Newman would probably help. But the reality is the way he handled this thing from a development standpoint, trying to get the program in a better place was rather mismanaged if we're being honest because most of this team is going to be gone next year or at least should be because they're not nearly talented enough to play in the big 12 and then you're turning over your roster for the third or fourth time in as many years yeah that's that's, that's a tough go of it there's no question i uh, this just i mean cincinnati fans are getting restless and understandably so because a, a loss like this is is just really tough to watch if you're a fan. I mean, like you said, there's not a lot of excitement or interest for this team right now anyway because they're not playing for anything and they're in the American, they're playing at East Carolina. But when you play well for most of a game, you're scoring, you've got a double-digit lead, and then you get outscored like 29-9 to in the final five to ten minutes of action, that ain't good. I mean, honestly, what is their best win this year? Tulane maybe? Uh, home against UCF is probably their best win. According to Ken Palm, UCF is 58 to lane is 83. And both okay, of those were home right. wins. Okay. And both of those make me on. And that's part of the reality of playing the American athletic conference. It's, it was the same way when Xavier was in the a 10, those conference games are not fun. So you better be really good. If you want to keep your fans engaged from the end of December through March. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing if you're playing in the American and you put together a really good non-conference resume and you still were in the conversation for the end. I mean, you're not even close to the conversation for anything at the moment. No, that's true. All right, let's switch gears here to NKU. The Norse lost at Wright State, 83-65. Back-to-back losses that were like that after they had lost to Youngstown State in similar fashion. And then they turn around and beat IUPUI by 39 points on Sunday 86 to 47. The Norse will play at Purdue Fort Wayne and on Friday and at Cleveland State on Sunday this weekend. Skinny, what do you make of NKU's one on one week? 
Well, I'll ask you because IUPUI was just horrifyingly bad. Yeah. Um, but but did you see signs of anything on either end of the floor? I mean, the score would suggest it because they scored almost 90 and gave up less than 50. But um, did you see any signs of anything on either end of the floor where you're like, all right, that feels like something you can hang your hat on heading down the four-game stretch to end the season? Well, definitely, because if you were in the building about an hour before tip-off for that NKU-IUPUI game, despite the fact that it was IUPUI, there were a lot of nervous people. I don't think anyone knew exactly what to expect from this team after the way they had come out in back-to-back games, Youngstown State and Wright State. And it's not that either of those teams are terrible. Certainly losing at Youngstown State isn't anything to look down upon them for. It's not a terrible loss or anything. Youngstown State's probably the best team in this conference. Yeah. No, but right. to just completely fold the way they did. I mean, this is a competitive league. There's not a lot of separation between these teams. And NKU is right there with any of them. So to get beat by... 15 to 20 points in back-to-back games like that and and be in both of those games with about 10 minutes left and then just completely get blown away in the final minutes and kind of look lost, not have a lot of fight. That was a concern because it's like, are these guys losing it down the stretch here? Are they, have their confidence been lost? What's going on? And at least they had all of their energy and toughness and the defense was back against IUPUI. They looked like the team they've looked like full, when they've been at their best this year. It was Darren, one of the Darren, most complete performances. Aaron Horn tweaked the lineup a little, right? Yeah, he took Trey Robinson out and put Trayvon Faulkner back in the starting lineup. And part of that could have just been at senior day, and Trayvon yeah, Faulkner's a yeah. 50-year senior and uh, all-time wins leader, all-time games play leader at NKU. So they, it could have just been a nod to him. But I do think it was more about trying to get the guys back on the floor who are giving max effort and making sure they have one of their leaders out there in Trayvon Faulkner. So... They looked better, but no one's going to give you any credit for playing well against IUPUI. No, that's you got to do it this weekend against Purdue Fort Wayne and uh, against Cleveland State. Yeah, Cleveland State is a team you're battling for seeding with at the moment. Yeah, I mean, again, the Horizon League at the top is has just been pretty crazy this year. Youngstown State and Milwaukee tied at twelve and four for the lead. Cleveland State, NKU, right behind both of those teams at eleven and five. And then you have Oakland at 10 and seven and Wright State at nine and seven. And again, top four seeds get a buy in the first round of the right. conference tournament. Really, top five seeds do. And then the top four seeds get to host a second round game. So, very important that you land among those top four seeds, which NKU right now is tied for third. We'll see how it plays out down the stretch. Yeah. And they got a game and a half separation between them and Oakland, too. So, that's at least a decent spot to be in. Correct. I will wrap it up with Kentucky here. The Wildcats lost at Georgia 75 to 68 over the weekend, then turned around and got a big quad one win at Mississippi State 71 68. That was on Wednesday night. They play Tennessee at home on Saturday. And then Wednesday, they head to Gainesville to take on Florida. Skinny, give me your thoughts on Kentucky's one in one week. I'll give them credit for, for picking themselves up by the bootstraps and going to win at Mississippi State and, and scoring 71 points in the process. One thing states fairly elite at is they're pretty damn good on the defensive end. Yeah. I think top um, five in the country. Yeah. Something along those lines. And, and um, you know, I did it on a night where, where Casey Wallace back to back games. I mean, the Georgia game, he didn't shoot it. Well, he actually didn't shoot it hardly at all. This game, he was horrifyingly bad shooting it. He did have 11 assists. So you kind of did that with really essentially one of your two shooters. He and Reeves are really the only ones with Frederick out that are shooters. I mean, I know Chris Livingston hoisted three threes, but he's not a three point shooter. Um, you know, if you'd have told me that had gone on the road in case Wallace is going to go one of 13 and 0 of eight, I would have told you they'd have gotten, they'd have gotten beat. Yeah. So give them credit for, for, for playing well enough defensively. They're still horrifyingly bad in Kempom metrics at like 101 now. Um, but that, that was, that was a big quad one win. If you go by bracket matrix, Rick, um, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, Kentucky was still in. Then they, they dropped out. Um, Cause I'm going to guess at that point, people updated their, their, their brackets and, uh, Mississippi State had hopped in. So if it comes down to tiebreakers, because Texas A&M's on that 11 seed line at the moment too, you do have wins in tiebreaker scenarios with Mississippi State on the road and Texas A&M, albeit at home. So those 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 could matter. But you still got some work to do, man. Um, I don't think they can go to Arkansas and win at the end of the season. So that leaves you with, with the following games. And you just mentioned this weekend, a home game with Tennessee, Sweeping Tennessee would be hugely monumental. That would almost salt it away, to be honest with you, as long as you took care of business against a Vandy. Yeah. But you still got to play Tennessee this week. You mentioned you got to go on the road to play Florida at Florida. Then Auburn comes to Rupp, then Vandy, and then the Arkansas. So I'm going to say the Arkansas game's a loss. I'm going to say the Vandy game's a win. And that takes you down to 
in my opinion, needing one of those other three games, the home with Auburn, home with Tennessee at Florida. I think if you pull that off, I think you get in and that would even be with a two and three finish. So you think just one of those three games that they've got to win? I, I do. Because that at Florida game feels very winnable to me. It does. No, I, it does. And, and you know, the Auburn game, you know, it's at home. And I I think Auburn's a nice team. I don't think they're great. I think Tennessee's going to come in with some revenge on their mind. Um, yeah. yeah. You're catching them coming off the high of beating Alabama, too. But I think you can get that snap back to your attention if you're Rick Barnes because of the fact that Kentucky beats your ass at your place. Yeah, I, I just never know with this Tennessee offense on the road what to right. expect from them. No, you're right. When they're at home, they're great. But when their offense goes on the road, there are just those games where they freeze up and can't score. So I wouldn't rule that out entirely either, especially when you looked at the way the matchup played out the first time. Uh, I, I think the thing that I'm most surprised about this Kentucky team is, one, it's impossible to believe that a John Calipari coach team is this bad defensively. I mean, yeah. even even if you go back to that 2012-2013 team, the Archie Goodwin, Alex Poitras, uh, Wooly Cauley Stein, uh, Kyle Wilcher team that was hor- horrid, they were eight. They finished the year 88th in defense, which is the worst Calipari's teams have ever finished, Memphis or Kentucky. This team, like you mentioned, is outside the top 100 right now. It's just impossible to believe. But I'm also nearly as shocked that they turned around, got it together, and won at Mississippi State on Wednesday. I am too. I know. I, I, I did I, not see that win coming at all. I left for them for dead and said they are. They might not win another game this year. Yeah, they Vandy. You could have given them Vandy. You know? Well, Vandy, but that's even well, that I, it was but, in but question. Here, no, here, and that's the thing when I when I when I'm kind of doing this in my head and looking. That's why last night felt really big to get that one at least in your back pocket. Huge, uh, uh, especially as I mentioned, kind of a tiebreaker scenario if it ever comes down to it with a Mississippi State to get in or, or get out. Um, and it leaves you with less work to do. I mean, if you'd have lost last night, I think you would have had to have definitely beaten Tennessee, definitely won at Florida, definitely beaten Auburn, avoided a bad loss to Vandy. And then, yeah, you could lose at Arkansas and still survive that. That's where I think last night gives you some wiggle room now down the stretch um, to to not have to go four and one, uh, maybe not even three and two. If you can go two and three and pick up another quad one win with the Auburn at Florida, uh, Tennessee group, take care of business against Vandy. And then, like I said, Arkansas and Arkansas is very, very difficult. Um, and I don't think they win that game, but if they get some momentum going, maybe they do. Uh, maybe they get CJ Frederick back at that point, Sevilla Wheeler back at that point. They're back to full strength. Um, I don't even know if that matters, to be honest with you, but uh, yeah, that, that Mississippi State game, I, I'll give them a lot of credit because I, I left them for dead too. That is their second quad one win of That's the it. season. They, they, they got. have the win against Tennessee, so they're two and seven in quad one games, but they are eight and eight against quad one and quad two opponents, six and one against quad two teams. So they've done pretty well in those second tier games. Just they have not won hardly any of the quad one games this year. The big issue on the resume is they do have that quad four loss uh, at home against South Carolina. So that is a big anchor on the resume right now and something that's really weighing them down when it comes to, because if you just had the, the no bad losses resume and you were at eight and eight against quad one, quad two, I think that looks a I, lot better. I, I I would I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, but having that quad four loss to go with it, it really makes things a lot different. And Kentucky, let's be honest, they're probably going to get a little bit of a bump because of their name and preseason expectations and who they are. I think that's just the way this thing works a little bit. But uh, my, my stance now is that Kentucky will be a tournament team. And before Wednesday night, I did not feel that way. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And especially when you look at bracket matrix, they've got on the 11 seed lines at the moment, Memphis, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, North Carolina, New Mexico, and USC. Um, and then you start to look at the the other teams around them on the bubble. And there's not, it's so funny. You know, you a lot of times you'll have a lot of others that, that people will put in their brackets. There's It's not a very big list, Rick. It's Kentucky, Wisconsin, which actually has some good quad one, quad two lines, I think, if you combine them. Clemson, and then you're down to Oregon, Utah State, Seton Hall. So it's not like Kentucky's battling with, you know, 15 other teams with really good resumes. Um, they, they've got flaws, too. And like I said, two of the teams are right now on the 11 seed line from Bracket Matrix. You beat head to head. I think that will count for something. Well, and I don't know if you've been paying attention to New Mexico at all, but they've lost five of their yeah, last they've, they've six scuffled. games, yeah. four in a row. And their most recent losses were at Air Force, which is 159 in Ken Palm, and home against Wyoming, which is 149 in Ken Palm. And they lost by 14 to Wyoming at home. 
So this New Mexico team, coached by Richard Patino Jr., by the way, is uh, in a tailspin right now, and it does not look like they are going to hang on and make the tournament. So yeah, they, they were a cute little story early in the year. Yeah, they. I mean, they were the last uh, undefeated team during the regular season, and they, they got and the fourteen. And he beat his father head to head. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they did play back in December. So I don't know. It's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see the way it plays out for the Cats. It's like they've been the storyline all year that we keep wanting to write them off, and that you keep saying, "All right, this this team doesn't have it. They're just they're terrible." And then they'll do something like they did on Wednesday night. That goes, huh? Maybe they can still figure this thing out. I don't know. Yeah, I, it, 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 they are weird. There's no question. All right. One more topic here before we get to some ask skinny anything. The red skinny pitchers and catchers were scheduled to report to Goodyear, Arizona this week as the Reds got spring training underway. There are 22 pitchers and three catchers on the 40 man roster, plus another 11 pitchers and three catchers that were non roster invitees. Position players will arrive in Goodyear on Sunday. And we'll get this thing underway for real. I'll ask you, Skinny, do you have any interesting spring training storylines that you're following with this Reds team? Does Ellie De La Cruz force his way onto the opening day roster? That and maybe the last two starting slots in the pitching rotation? Yeah, yeah, I guess if you want to go that route, sure. Especially with some guys that are like questionable health-wise, I guess. I mean, aside from that... (laughs) It's not funny. It's, I mean, it really is hard to find something to care about. I know it's pitchers and catchers report, and we do this whole thing where we crap on the Reds ever since last year, which, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll try to be better as we get closer to this thing. But what really are you supposed to talk about with this team right now as, as the big storylines? Yeah, I, I, I think from a spring training perspective, it's not a lot. But I, I, I am interested to see if the, the what you're hoping are going to be the anchor of your rotation for the next several years to come in Hunter Green, Nick Lodola, Graham Ashcraft, if they take that proverbial next step forward, each and every one of them. And it's just hard to really see anything like that. Until, until, until the season starts. Yeah, until yeah. the season starts. Those yeah. guys are all on the team. It's not like we're going to be going, oh, yeah. are they going to be good enough to make the team this year and, and play in the show? No, they're they're in the show. So it's all going to depend on what actually happens with those guys once the season starts. And I would agree with you that the starting rotation is really going to be the one reason to watch this team, unless Ellie De La Cruz does make the the opening day roster. Yeah. He, I think they've done a really good job of not rushing him along. And, and I, I hope that continues, but I think you are at the stage though. If he proves to be good enough now, I'm not sure what else you're waiting for. Yeah. Right. I mean, what, what difference does it make right now? I mean, do I want to see Kevin Newman or Jose Barrero playing shortstop and batting 183? Or do I want to see Ellie De La Cruz if he tears it up in the spring, getting a crack at big league pitching again, if they don't feel he's ready, I'm fine with that. If that's the decision they make, but if he's that good and so good in the spring that it's almost he forces your hand, then let's run with it and go with it. Yeah, it's the only chance you have to make something exciting out of this season. Yeah, and I, for yeah, that I, guy I to be in the show. And don't rush him, right. but also there is zero reason to hold him back right now. That's correct. What about the rule changes, Skinny? The, we got a pitch timer coming in this year. We like got it. The elimination of the shift. I don't like that. We've got bigger bases. Yeah, I don't know what that's going to do. They say it has increased steal attempts and yeah. stolen bases at the minor league does. level. I hope it does. And, and I think the, the pitch the pitch clock will be a good thing. Um, I watched it in a minor league game I went to uh, up in Akron when I went up to cover state volleyball, uh, broadcast some state volleyball games this past year. Went to a minor league game in Akron's Park, and they had the pitch clock. And honestly, I watched it really carefully for the first two or three innings. And then it was like, oh, okay, these guys are used to it now. And they, it did have a nice, better flow to it. I've long thought there's just way too much nonsense going on with pitchers and the routines yep. and batters stepping out and all of that stuff. I just never understood what the need was for all the wasted time. So I have zero issue with the pitch clock. I think it's something that they they definitely needed. And there's there's no reason you should ever need 30 or more seconds to get the ball to home plate after you catch it from the catcher. Yeah, a few years ago, it might, might have been during the COVID, maybe it was during the COVID year. Um, I think it was Fox Sports Ohio, now Bally Sports, which may not have Reds games this season after all. But um, Fox Sports Ohio replayed a, a Reds Phillies playoff game from 76, I believe. And Jim Cott was pitching for for Philadelphia. And I mean to tell you, dude, it was a joy to watch. It was literally he'd throw a pitch. 
get it back, get a, whatever sign, he, sometimes not even not, he'd just go into his windup. And I mean, it was lickety split. Nobody was messing around. I'm like, that's, I remember those days. Those were great. Yeah, I, I just, I think this will be a good thing for the game. I don't think the other rules are really. I don't like big the banning of the shift. I, I don't like the banning of the shift. I, I'm just a big believer. And you hit your way around it. I think that's a fair point, but I also think I if think you're trying to make the game better, this is a way to do that because yeah, the I shift think, does suck. I think you should be able to position your defensive players wherever you want to position them. If you want to put eight guys lined up back to back to back to back to back at shortstop, great, do it. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you there. Like, I, I'm fine with that being the rule, too. But if you are trying to make the game more exciting and create more scoring and make it better, I do think this helps achieve that because it's really freaking hard to hit major league pitching. Everyone just goes, well, you should be good enough to hit it the other way. Well, okay, Chief, let's see you get in there and hit a 91-mile-an-hour slider the other way. You know what well, I mean? Like, but, it, but, I, but I do think there's some truth to that because it has become such a home run dominant game that guys aren't trying to hit the ball the other way either. That's partly true, but that ain't changing. The analytics say what the analytics say. Teams have decided they're going to play this way. If you're trying to fix the game and make it better from an administrative standpoint, you're at the top and you're trying to figure out how do we fix our game and make it more watchable. This probably does help achieve that. I hope. And I, and I do hope if the bigger bases lead to more stolen bases, I'm, I'm all for it. I think let's, let's, let's do a like, skinny podcast sports science segment on uh, why bigger bases would create more stolen bases. What's I your just, theory just, there? Just this little, because I guess, you know, that when you do your slide, you're going to get to the base just a hair earlier. I think it's also a little more surface area to avoid attack. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. You know, just, that, just that. I mean, you're, we're really talking about fractions of a fraction of a second between being safe or out when you look at a lot of these replays. Yep. So I think maybe just being able to slide a little bit farther away from the glove might give them a leg up. And I've That's always been opinion. a listen. I know analytics people hate the stolen base. They don't think it because they think it's a, a, a chance at a wasted out. I, I've always thought this. And I'd love to go back and do this. I'd love for stolen bases to be added to a player's total bases, which then factors into a slugging percentage. And let's say, let's say you get a single Rick and you try to steal second, you get that total base taken away from you. So there's also negatives to it, but if you're going to be 40 steals minus 12 caughts and add 28 total bases to it from an analytics standpoint, suddenly that guy's OPS is going to go up and you're going to go, Oh, stolen base is worth it after all. I, I don't pay enough attention to all the advanced stats to know, but do they factor in like what a pitcher's stats look like after a guy has stolen a base on him? No, that's a good, that's a good, I'm sure they because do. that's always, in my opinion, been the biggest impact of running on pitchers is you made the pitcher distracted thinking yes. about what you're doing out there and less focused on making the best pitch possible. Like guys trying to do a slide step or, or keep you off balance while you're a, a runner means he's doing something that's suboptimal from a pitching standpoint. Right, right. And that should be their main focus. To me, that's that's so valuable to have a guy potentially throwing a fastball in a situation that he might not otherwise because he's worried you might steal or doing a slide step and, and not having perfect mechanics on a pitch and maybe hanging a breaking ball because he's worried about what you're doing behind him on second base. That stuff, to me, I think matters in the game more than the analytics will probably show and more than people would probably ever admit to. And and let me be clear. People are going to jump on me on Twitter and say, oh, there's FDWP that already accounts for that. Are you an idiot? My bad. I did not look up that statistic. <laughs> that is my fault. I like I like what you just came up with there. Yeah. I mean, like in, in all seriousness, that's kind of what sucks about baseball, right? Is it, all no, just, it absolutely does. It's taken. It's it, honestly, it's taken all the pleasure out of it. It's it all really just become a math equation. And honestly, if you're not willing to go through all the 900 stats and know them perfectly, then someone's always just going to come in and be like, well, that's not true. That's already calculated. It's like, all right, whatever. Baseball in the 70s, 80s and 90s was much more pleasurable to watch and talk about. It's talk no about fun it. to talk about now because it's always yeah, someone right. just comes in and is like, well, what about some long initial? It's like, OK, <laughs> Babbitt. Babbitt plus. Yeah. All right. Let's get into some ask any anything. All right. Fire away. All right, this is from a Xavier fan. Would you okay. rather win the Big East tournament or be the regular season Big East champion, Skinny? Um, I guess it would depend on my circumstance. If I'm Georgetown, I, I need to win the Big East tournament, don't I? All things equal. Uh -oh. All things equal for one of the better programs. Let's say you're Villanova. I think I'd rather win the regular season because 
that that's probably going to already have established my resume for the NCAA tournament. And then do I need all the extra games on my leg, on my team's legs to win the conference tournament? No, I'm, I'm going to go regular season. Well, what do you think is the bigger achievement? That's regular season, right? I mean, yeah, for, for God's sakes, Georgetown just won a biggies tournament, which tells you how big of an accomplishment that is. A hell of a run. It's got Pat Ewing two extra years. Yeah. What, what, what about the Big East tournament or making it to the Sweet 16, which the only reason this is being asked is because it was debated uh, amongst Xavier fans Wait, this week. Make the, make, win the Big East tournament or make it to the Sweet 16 the NCAA tournament? Yes. That's a no-brainer. Right. I mean, that's the dumbest win the question. East, win, win the Big East tournament, of course. <laughs> no, right. I mean, seriously, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Any, I mean, even just winning one game in the NCAA tournament is better than winning the Big East Correct. tournament. I don't understand how that's remotely yeah. a question. Uh, all right, this was one. That's from- point, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you how many conference tournament titles Xavier has won between the A-10 and the Big East. Can you? No. And I wouldn't. I mean, no one really cares that much about right. conference tournaments. No, you care about it's right, right or wrong. You care about what you do in March and hopefully into the first weekend of April. Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of times the best team in a conference is. I wouldn't say actively trying to lose, but they don't really care about winning their conference tournament because yeah, I'll, they've I'll, already I'll got a great seed. Set the, up. the litmus test of that, I'll be, I'll be interested to see what Houston does in the American. Yeah, well, the, the thing about Houston is I don't know that they have to try real hard to win the American Athletic Conference tournament. That, that's fair, but Memphis on a given night can get them. Maybe. I mean, it's, it's not that they maybe, can't and, lose, but also, I just think see, even if they mail it in, they probably yeah, win. Maybe. What were you going to say about Cincinnati? As I say, UC played right with them too, so. That's true. They did. What sporting event? This was from last week. We didn't we didn't get to it because okay. uh, I had to jet. But what sporting event was appreciated as much as it should have been? An example for me was Fury versus Wilder trilogy. Those were two great fighters in their prime, putting on an unbelievable show. Curious if Skinny has anything that comes to mind. That's a good one. I mean, the the I, I guess, and I'm not an NBA fan, but the Bird Magic. Into Michael Isaiah Thomas and the Bad Boys mixed in. Those were always those always felt like they lived up to the hype when you got to the finals. Those were some great finals years. You know what one that I mean I don't know that it was all that hyped, but I guess like looking back, you had potentially the best team ever in the Golden State Warriors. I mean they they had the best regular season ever yep. that year. That then you played the best player or arguably the best player ever in LeBron in the finals, and LeBron came back from the three to one, three to one deficit down, yeah. to win. That's that's a pretty crazy a pretty matchup yeah. that really lived up to the hype. That's a pretty good one. Uh, but I don't know that it was like, was it as, I think it was appreciated in the moment too. I think people really made a big deal about that three to one thing that had never been done before. So I would say that might be in the conversation. Yeah. Some of the Super Bowls of the seventies, some, some, some Steelers, uh, Steelers, Cowboys matchups. Um, you had like star power on top of sub star power and they always lived up to the hype. All right, this was also last week. It was going on during the NBA trade deadline, so it was a little bit more timely then, but I'll still ask you now. If you had to trade T. Higgins to the NBA, what player would you target for return? Ooh, that's a good one. T. was a pretty good high school basketball player, I do believe. And he had one of the great box outs of this past season, if you recall, down at Tennessee, where he boxed out the corner and out jumped him for a touchdown. I mean, if T. Higgins wasn't a good basketball player, it it would only be because he did not play. Oh. He, he's at too an advanced age to do this, but give me 30 year old LeBron and put him at tight end. Yeah. How, I mean, it's almost hard to go anywhere other than LeBron with this question. I feel like just because everyone's had that. What if going on forever with him? He was a good high school football player up until his sophomore year, I think. And then when he quit, but LeBron at six, eight with his fluidity would just be an unbelievable red zone target. Can you imagine him running down the seam as a tight end? Yeah, that too. I like, I mean, let's not forget. How many six eight tight ends are out there too? Not just his his athleticism and bulk and strength. He's also tall. Right. I mean, six six guys look huge in the NFL. Right. Correct. Yeah, a six eight guy with that leaping ability and coordination and body control, speed, athleticism. Just it would be ridiculous. I always have a hard time getting past LeBron when someone asks this about the basketball players playing football stuff. Always hard to go past LeBron. Russell Westbrook is. is another name that's always pretty good, but he doesn't have the height. No, you're right. Um, I like Kevin Durant to throw jump balls too, maybe down around the goal line. I don't know, man. He's so skinny. I'd be he's worried skinny. about him getting folded up. He, yeah, he'd be, a, he'd be a specialized alley-oop kind of guy down by the goal line. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
uh, have some have some five ten cornerback out there on. I there, there, speaking of that, there, there were some great matchups in the seventies. There was a little corner for the Washington then Redskins named Pat Fisher, who was all of five feet eight, and Harold Carmichael, who was a outstanding receiver through the seventies and, and into the early eighties for Philadelphia. He went six eight, maybe six nine, and there was just some great matchups where Pat Fisher would rake at the ball because he couldn't out jump obviously Harold Carmichael and they would have some just classic matchups and that was always fun to watch a guy foot taller or a foot smaller trying to cover a guy foot taller could you imagine the battles Russell Westbrook would have with defensive backs in the NFL how about him and Eli Apple jawing at each other oh god how would that go he would be like worse than Odell Beckham I think if he was receiver in the NFL in terms of his antics yeah no no question by the way I I, not, not the I hijacked the part of I've had enough Travis Kelsey. I told you. I mean, I've, I've had enough. guys annoying. Yes. He's, he's crossed the line from, from whatever he thought was cutesy. And again, I don't blame him for taking shots at, at the mayor. I think we all kind of wink, wink, nod, nodded at that one, but now he's gotten to the point where he just thinks he's in a WWE match every time he speaks. Right. Like he's been cutting promos now for two or three straight weeks. And it's like, yes. I mean, when you're go-to in a big moment where you're on national TV, and you're going to take shots at somebody else in 2023 and you start doing a rock impression. And sorry, but you're kind of a nerd. I mean, you're just like yeah. kind of lame. I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah. Um, no one gave us a chance. No one predicted. what you, yeah. How stupid is that? Someone say something else one time when they won exactly. a championship, please. Yeah. You, you only won the AFC. You only won the AFC championship four straight times going into this year. I, and yeah. listen, I know some people tried to not pick them in the West. Those people were stupid. Um, I actually did my prediction column and looked back at it. I was actually better than I thought. Um, and one of them was that until somebody beats the Chiefs, it's impossible not to pick them to win the AFC West. So there's a lot of people that picked you to win the AFC West, Chief. You got a Hall of Fame coach and a Hall of Fame quarterback, and you're probably a Hall of Famer yourself. Um, there's a lot of people that, that, that thought you had a chance, my man. Trust Any, me. Anyone not picking you to win the even even not picking you to win the Super Bowl was mostly out of looking for something new, looking for something else to say. It's not fun as someone who does media stuff or makes predictions to pick the best team every year. That you, you look for something else, you look for a new angle. And this year with the Chiefs losing uh Cheetah. It was time to to look somewhere else and, and say something new. That's why no one was picking them before the season. But it's like not like anyone thought they wouldn't be in the conversation. I mean, that's just yeah. I, I hate players and coaches doing that whole no one thought we could do it. It's like, shut up. By, by the way, I, I, I did have an epic fail in my preseason prediction column where I had the Rams going to the Super Bowl. But I did pick five of the seven teams in both both conferences to get to the playoffs. And how about this? I didn't even realize I did this until I went back and looked at it. I picked the AFC North as the following records. Bengals 10 and seven, Baltimore 10 and seven, Pittsburgh eight and nine, Cleveland seven and 10. I was a couple games off on the Bengals, obviously, because they went 12 and four, but Baltimore went 10 and seven. I was one game different on Pittsburgh. They went nine and eight and Cleveland went seven and 10. So I'm going to give myself a little pat on the back for that. Wow. That's pretty good. It's getting best nicknames in all of sports. Oh, the anteaters got to be up there, don't they? The banana slugs. Oh well, this this person I thought was uh, I see I didn't take it as mascot names. I took it as like player nicknames. Oh, but that's you're... interesting. Maybe that's what they meant. Oh, I don't know that. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Maybe we need clarification on that. Yeah. Oh, I I immediately thought big unit. Randy Johnson. One. Randy Johnson. And juice is the best. Yeah. No Juice is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, we may need clarification on that one. Okay. Well, whoever submitted that question, uh, please. It was uh, Xavier Professor. Xavier Professor, please clarify if you well, meant nicknames for teams or nicknames for players. One of my one of my favorites was a player in the early 80s. If we're talking players, he played for the Oakland Athletics when Billy Martin was the manager. And Billy Martin issued a great line off of this. Guy's name was Mac. His nickname was Shooty Babbitt. Nice. Shooty Babbitt. Babbitt. And Shooty was so bad that Billy Martin once said about him, if I ever put his name in, if I ever put Shooty's name in the lineup, somebody needs to Shooty me. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. That's great. Uh, This is, I feel like this question is being mean. What's the last book you read, Skinny? Um, Man, that's a good question. Probably a biography of Walt Disney. And then I recycle a lot of former sports biographies that I've, I got. I, 
I just reread, believe it or not, Rick Pitino's Born to Coach, and don't ask me why. I was going to ask you why, so I, I won't. I don't know why. I, I really don't. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a biography guy more than anything else. I, I like sports biographies, obviously, but certain people biographies. The Walt Disney biography was fascinating. All right. This is from our boy Riggs from Barstool. He says, hypothetical, if you eat a gallon of your least favorite ice cream flavor before the game ends, it guarantees your team a win. How many games are you doing it for? Oh, my gosh. My le- See, he said least favorite ice cream, right? Yes. The hell with my team. Uh, I, yeah, if it's if it's my least favorite ice cream, I, I can't I can't do that for my team. I can't do uh, yeah. Could you imagine how bad your stomach would hurt oh. eating a gallon of ice cream you don't want to eat? No, no, I was say my favorite ice cream, sure. I mean, eating a gallon of ice cream, a a gallon's so like, tough regardless of what it is. That's what I was gonna say, whether it's your favorite or least favorite. But yeah, see, I'm not in that superstitious for my team. I'm not superstitious for my team guy. Well, this Are isn't you? superstitious, buddy. This is well, guaranteed. It is. It, it is. It's one of those. If I do this, my team's going to win. But this is guaranteed. It works. This yeah, isn't like you're just true. thinking you have an impact. This is like you actually have an impact. Yeah. I would save it. I would I would probably say, yeah, yeah that's I would a good do call. it. But I would be like, I'm only doing it for maybe the game at right state and the semifinals and finals of the conference tournament. Yeah, it would it would it would suck if your team's like an 11 seed in the NCAA tournament. You'd have to do that six straight times, right? Or maybe yeah. seven with a playing game. That would be tough. I mean, yeah, if you're in the NCAA tournament, you definitely got to do it, I guess. So, well, I see. I wouldn't do it if I'm. See, this is funny. If if I was a Kentucky fan, I wouldn't have done it last year for the St. Peter's game because I would have thought I don't, I don't need to do it for this game. I'll save it for you know the two versus three or the when we play the one seed or and it, you know one of those. But I, I wouldn't waste it on the 15 seed. And maybe Riggs got a point. I know Riggs likes Kentucky basketball. Maybe Riggs should have done that last year for the for the St. Peter's game. <laughs> I don't know if this actually works, but yeah, I mean, I think he would have based on the tweets I've seen coming out of him this year. I, I, I think, think he would have. I think he would have too. What was the most romantic date skinny has ever taken a date on for Valentine's day? Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a romantic <laughs> guy. You gotta be, you're talking, you're barking up the wrong freaking tree here, my man. I have to imagine. The, be, they the probably best I probably would be the answer. The best I probably have done is dinner in a movie. That's probably, that's, that's, that's probably the best I've done. Ever or Valentine's Day? Do you have a, a good date you've ever taken a date on? Probably back in the day when I was courting my wife. I'm assuming I did. I took her to Air Supply, an Air Supply concert once. They what were a romantic it? group. Okay, what's Air Supply? They're, they were a group. A romantic group, I guess. Yeah, they were. They played romantic songs. Okay. Uh, what'd you do this Valentine's Day? Absolutely, positively nothing. We were nice. dealing with our, we we're dealing with our youngest dog's health issues, and we were literally up all night Monday into Tuesday morning with no sleep, and then had to take her to the vet. Oh man, sorry so that, to hear that. That made for a less than romantic Valentine Day, and truth be told, it wasn't going to be probably all that romantic anyway. How about me? Uh, what did you do? I, to, had my wife show up to the end of the NKU coaches show, and then got her a free dinner from uh, our awesome. guy Tony. There, I think yeah. that worked out. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I don't know. She seemed okay with it. So good. All right. We'll end with this. Who was Skinny's first celebrity crush? Hmm. Hang on. This I got to think about this one. That's a good one. You, yeah, I, I know mine right off the top of my head, and it's the weirdest one ever. I, I grew up as when you're getting to those those years of crushes. I was kind of in that Charlie's Angels, and and I like Jacqueline Smith more than I like Farrah Fawcett, but I didn't dislike either. And then when Cheryl Ladd came along, that was probably. That was probably number one for me. All right. I'm Googling Jacqueline Smith from Charlie's Angels. Okay. I can see. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. I know her now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Old now, but yes, she's in her correct. 70s. But yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. I, I get this. I think you're right. Yeah. Farrah Fawcett, Kate Jackson. Yeah. Kate Jackson. Did, Smith. Did, did, yeah. And then, then Kate Jackson left and, and uh, or I think who left. One of them left and Cheryl Ladd took took their place. I think you're right on this one. I think I'm a Jacqueline Smith guy out of the Charlie's Angels. See? See? Everybody loved Farah. Yeah, she had the hype. That's the name I knew. I didn't know Jacqueline Smith's name. Yeah, but- I will say, I will say a little Raquel Welch, God rest her soul, passed away, but she wasn't in a lot of stuff in those years, I guess. Raquel Welch. Uh oh, oh she's She's still, still pretty good looking. Yeah. Well, she just passed away yesterday. Oh, that's 
okay. She was pretty good looking. Yeah, she was. No, I mean, up to the end. Yeah, at 80. Yeah. She was pretty good looking, but I don't know if that's disrespectful to call an 80 year old woman good looking or not, but no, I, no, I, I, I would be pumped. With you. Um, you, you want to know who my first celebrity crush was? All right. So let me, so let me think about this. How, give me your age at the time of your first celebrity crush. Uh, your age. It would have been, I would have been probably, actually, I think I can tell you exactly. Um, yes. Okay. It was the 1996 Summer Olympics. 1996 Summer Olympics? Yes. Oh, my Lord. Who? Dominique Mociano. I remember Dominique Mociano. Oh, my <laughs> God. Gymnast. That's hilarious. I had like, uh, it, I, actually, it's kind of freaky looking back. It's like I would have been scared of myself, but I had like women's U.S. gymnast books because I was a big Dominique Mociano <laughs> fan as like a second grader. Man. And not in like a way as I wanted to be a gymnast. I just thought she was hot, but uh, that's a little weird looking back. Yeah, we had, I think from an Olympian standpoint in my era, it was probably Dorothy Hamill, who was a figure skater. Uh, another name I got to look up, I guess. Got to look it up. Go look it up. Everybody had to have that haircut as a girl. Oh, God, that's a bad haircut. <laughs> She's got the helmet. It's great. Uh, I don't know about great, but yeah, okay. we, all like, we all liked it some Dorothy Hamill back in the day. I mean, she, she's cute, but that hair is brutal. I'm not a short hair guy. No offense to anybody with short hair. There you go. All right. Good question. Loved it. Yeah, that was great. All right. Good so we need clarification on the nickname question for next week is what we need. That's right. All right. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Rick. As always, we'll be back uh, one week from today. A lot more college basketball to discuss. The Reds full squad workouts will have taken place as they approach. By the time we do this podcast, their spring training opener. Oh, Damn. God, that'll be exciting. Looking forward to that and much, much more. So join us next week on this podcast. For Rick Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope Edition, presented by Ryan Kiefer of First Community Mortgage. <laughs>